Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Before we start, we have to let you know that you can sign up to our 30-day free digital trial and get access to the New Scientist app. It's available on iOS and Android smartphone or tablet devices. The launch of our in-app audio feature means there has never been a better time to join New Scientist. Tune in for news, features, comment and more from the world's leading science and technology weekly. Listen to all available audio content from any one issue in one go for maximum convenience, whether you're on the move, relaxing, whatever you're doing. Sign up to our free trial today at newscientist.com slash 30 days. That's three zero days. Newscientist.com slash 30 days. Hello and welcome to New Scientist Weekly. I'm Penny Sarchet, New Scientist News Editor. And I'm Rowan Hooper, Podcast Editor. Joining us this week is tech reporter Matt Sparks, which means, Matt, we must have some mind-blowing tech story to talk about. Is that right? Yes, we're going to be talking about time crystals. Woohoo! <laughs> that makes me feel like I'm in a Doctor Who podcast. Well, fortunately, we're not, for me anyway. <laughs> but more on time crystals later. Also, on the show this week, we're looking at the global effort to boost the effectiveness of Chinese vaccines against covid And we have the first published finding on the discovery of microplastics in human placentas. We also hear what this sound of dolphins has to do with code breaking. But we start this week with the climate crisis. There's a big report coming out next week from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. So Rowan, let's have a curtain raiser. What is it and what should we expect? Yeah, what it is, is the latest assessment report from the IPCC. So you get these every six to seven years and they come in four chunks. One on the physical basis of climate change, one on its impacts and one on how the world tackles it. And then followed by a fourth uh, synthesis bringing the three together. So what we're getting next week is the report on the physical basis of climate change. And the big things to look out for will be the latest projected temperature rises for varying emission scenarios. Uh, In other words, the best and worst futures we can hope for. Because as we get more and more data, we're able to tighten up the predictions of what might happen depending on what we do. Right. So climate scientists look at what might happen if the carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere doubled compared to pre-industrial times. Uh, levels then were, this is before the Industrial Revolution, so levels then were 200, about 270, 278 parts per million of carbon dioxide, and now they're around 415 parts per million. So the models used to show that a doubling would bring a warming of 1.5 to 4.5 
degrees Celsius. Uh, so quite a broad range. But we now know that the lower level, that lower level is more like 2.3 degrees, which means we now know that the climate is more sensitive to carbon dioxide than we thought. So that's extremely not what we would have wanted. <laughs> no. And um, this report is coming in the middle of a year when we've seen incredible tangible impacts of climate change around the world, including countries that maybe haven't really uh, noticeably experienced them before. As we've been reporting on the podcast, we've had floods in Europe and in China, searing heat waves in Greece and Turkey. It reached 49.1 degrees Celsius, which is 120 degrees Fahrenheit on the 20th of July in Turkey. Um, And then there's been that heat wave too, of course, along the Pacific coast of North America and in the Arctic. Lapland had nighttime temperatures of 24.2 degrees All this from warming of about 1.2 degrees so far above pre-industrial temperatures. Yeah, and, uh, you know, the Olympics is just finishing in Tokyo. It's 37 degrees there. Uh, So, you know, we're seeing this because regions are warming differently around the world. As you say, we're now 1.2 degrees warmer on average, but some places are hotter and some are colder. So the Arctic, including, and that includes, you know, northern Canada, Siberia and Scandinavia, that area is warming much faster, three times faster than the global average. And that's why we're seeing the records going in those places. Uh, And it's why when we had David King on the podcast the other week, he said they're focused on trying to save the Arctic. Mm, You can see why. Um, We've got a piece in the magazine this week by Adam Vaughan looking at Svalbard in the Norwegian Arctic and some of the impacts of climate change. Well, so many impacts of climate change that are already being felt there. I uh, always wanted to go to Svalbard ever since mm. I read His Dark Materials. Same. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, even when Pullman wrote that about 20 years ago, there were environmental you know, climate effects going on in, in Svalbard and they're only getting worse. I mean, it used to be that the region, Svalbard, hardly ever got any rainfall in the winter. Uh, it used to happen 30 years ago. It would happen once every five years. And now it happens several times every winter. And when that happens, you get all these knock-on effects. So the rain falls on permafrost and then turns to ice. So when it does snow, the snow is just building up on this really slippery base, which leads to avalanches. And that means the towns in the region have to build avalanche protectors with you know massive steel girders. So you've got really big infrastructure projects going on to cope with this. And so that's just one example of a sort of reaction of, of try to, trying to adapt to a climate effect. And you mentioned permafrost. The, the, uh, another thing in Adam's piece that struck me is how the permafrost itself is changing. They've measured increases in permafrost temperatures up to 40 metres underground. And yeah. that's bringing all sorts of problems such as destabilising buildings, uh, airport runways, as well as um, there's this fear that um, methane leaks from the melting permafrost could then go on to make the whole thing even worse. Yeah. So Svalbard is showing a lot of impacts of warming. But before we get carried away, or I get carried away with Svalbard, let's give the last word to Kim Holman at the Norwegian Polar Institute. And he says, Svalbard is yet another consistent manifestation of the entire problem of climate change. But we mustn't make it into a competition such as who has the biggest change, California, British Columbia or the Mediterranean. That's not helpful, he says. No, quite. Climate change is, of course, a global issue that needs global action. And we'll come back to this next week to have a look at the contents of the report itself once it's out. Now, why are we hearing those clicks and whistles of dolphins? Uh, I mean, I love hearing that, but uh, why why are we hearing it? 
Well, this is a story about hiding secret messages in the calls of whales and dolphins. Mm. Unfortunately, it's not the cetaceans themselves that are hiding the messages, because that would be amazing. Um, But it's actually a clever way that people might be able to send secret underwater messages without being detected. Wow. So where did this idea come from? Well, it turns out that military sonar systems usually filter out the sounds made by marine mammals so that they can work better. And this means that disguising a message as a whale or dolphin call could be a really stealthy way to send information. So following this logic, a team at Tianjin University in China have designed a method for hiding code in the vocal calls of false killer whales, which is a species of dolphin. This isn't the first time it's been done. Previous attempts have focused either on clicks or on whistles. But this is quite conspicuous as it doesn't sound very natural to have just one or the other. What the Tianjin team managed to do was construct two coded sequences, one just with clicks and one with whistles, and then overlap them so that they sounded more realistic. And and did it work? Yeah, It sounded a lot like normal false killer whale chatter and it duped an AI eavesdropping program that had been trained to identify codes in acoustic communications. But despite all of that, it was still possible for the recipient to separate out the clicks and whistles and decode them. (laughs) Uh, Do we know what message they were sending? I I don't know, actually. (laughs) Um, I suspect it was pretty boring. (laughs) Um, But it's, it's very cunning of them anyway. Yeah, uh, dastardly. Um, But it should be said that this method um, is quite slow. So it transmitted 76 bits of information per second over five kilometres, which compared to other techniques is is really quite slow. I also have to wonder what it would mean for the animals themselves. Um, Apparently, if they heard these messages, it, it might be a bit like hearing someone speaking nonsense or perhaps a different dialect. But we know that marine mammals are already suffering so much from the huge amount of noise we make with shipping. So I'm a bit wary of any unintended consequences a technique like this might go on to have. Yeah, and it would be good to see um, AIs trained to communicate with dolphins and not just, you know, use military ways of, uh, you know, getting codes through. Yeah, exactly. We can but dream. (laughs) We interrupt this podcast to bring you news of a new audio product from New Scientist. Yes, subscribers are now able to listen to stories from the world's leading science and technology weekly through the app. We've teamed up with audio production company Sound Understanding to bring you professionally voiced and recorded versions of stories from the magazine each week. It's the exact same content, but in spoken form. It's easy to take part in the New Scientist audio experience. Just go to newscientist.com slash app, download the issue and explore. Wherever you see a headphones icon, that's where audio content is available and it's all free to subscribers. We hope you enjoy the new app. Check it out and happy listening. And we're back and it's COVID update time. Uh, Now, Penny, there's a scramble going on at the moment to boost the effectiveness of Chinese COVID-19 vaccines worldwide. Uh, So what's the story here? Well, over the past month or so, we've started to see a number of nations start mixing and matching their vaccines in an effort to fight the Delta variant of the coronavirus. This is a trend uh, predominantly among countries that have been using two particular vaccines made in China, which it's feared aren't offering enough protection against the new variant. So Cambodia, Bahrain, Indonesia, Thailand, Uruguay and the United Arab Emirates are now all switching to what's known as heterologous vaccination, which is where you use a combination of doses of different vaccines. 
Journalist Luke Taylor reported on this for New Scientist this week. Cambodia, for example, is going to give an Oxford AstraZeneca booster shot to people who have already received two doses of one of the leading Chinese vaccines, Sinovac or Sinopharm. Uh, we'll post a link to Luke's story in the show notes. But um, so is China giving that booster because those two vaccines that they're using aren't working? Well, they are working, but it's hard to know if they're working well enough, especially in the face of the new variant. So real world data doesn't really give a clear picture. One study in Brazil back in January before Delta swept the world, that study suggested that the Sinovac vaccine may only be 50% effective. But then a Turkish trial a bit later found that it was 91% effective. So it's been quite hard to get a handle on how well these two vaccines are working. But there are reasons to suspect that they may not be holding up very well against the more infectious Delta variant. Chile and Uruguay, for instance, they've administered many Sinovac vaccines, but they've had recent surges in infection numbers. And in Indonesia, 131 healthcare workers are thought to have died since June, and most of them were vaccinated with Sinovac. So Indonesia is now giving healthcare workers the Moderna vaccine as a booster. Right. So it's kind of going ahead sometimes, even if we don't necessarily know how well it works. Well, what do we know? I signed up for a trial to do this. Um, In the end, I didn't get selected to take part. But that was when you had AstraZeneca and I was going to have Pfizer for the second dose. But I thought there was a suggestion that it did it did work to do to mix and match like this. Yeah, there are some ideas about uh, reasons why it might be better to have one of one and one of the other or, or a third booster even. But until we can really test them, we don't know if those ideas hold up. Sinovac is now recommending that people be given a third dose of its own vaccine. Uh, But there have been rumours that Chinese officials are considering administering the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine as a booster instead. Right, because things are flaring up again in China, aren't they? Yeah, to some extent. Um, There's currently an outbreak in Nanjing following one in Guangzhou in June. But one thing that's worth making clear is that it would be wrong to just dismiss the Sinovac and Sinopharm vaccines. They have been an absolute lifeline to the many countries that haven't been able to get doses of the other available, more effective vaccines. These two jabs have been used by more than 100 countries. Right. So even even if they're not as good, even if they have lower efficacy, they are still having a big impact worldwide. Yeah, absolutely. So the Sinovac vaccine is thought to have reduced mortalities in Uruguay by as much as 97%. And when the vaccine was trialled in a city in Brazil, deaths there decreased by 95%. So the situation is that these vaccines are vital for many countries right now, um, countries that otherwise might not have access to any vaccines at all. So ultimately, what we need is for more doses of the more effective vaccines to be produced. And then we'll likely see more of this heterologous booster approach across the countries that couldn't get their hands on the other jabs the first time round earlier on in the pandemic. Yeah, President Biden announced earlier this week that the US was donating more than 110 million doses of vaccine to foreign countries, which is more than any other country has done so far. That's great. Um, But remember, the WHO say 11 billion doses are eventually needed worldwide to get this thing completely under control. And we've had 4.2 billion so far. And on Wednesday this week, the WHO came out and called for a moratorium on booster shots until the end of September to give countries a chance to reach the 98.9% of people in low income countries who still haven't received a single shot yet. 
So wow. that's kind of that's interesting breaking news there. I think it's actually pretty unlikely that countries like Israel, the UK, the US that are all mulling booster shots or in Israel's case already going ahead with them. I think it's quite unlikely that they're going to rein in those plans. Now, it's impossible not to introduce this next story without mentioning Doctor Who. Huh, yes, it's the Time Crystal story. But as we said, this isn't a Doctor Who podcast. So why are we talking about time crystals? Matt, what even is a time crystal? So a time crystal is a very special, very weird type of crystal. So when you take a gas or a liquid, they tend to spread out to fill an area and their atoms and molecules are evenly distributed. And you can say at that point that they have spatial symmetry because it would look the same from every direction if you take that same liquid say water and you crystallize it into ice those molecules form repeating geometric patterns and they they stack together really neatly at that point physicists would say it's lost spatial symmetry because those patterns don't look the same from every angle that's that's normal crystals now in 2012 frank wilchek at the massachusetts institute of technology uh, who incidentally won a Nobel Prize for something else entirely, he had a thought, if time is considered a fourth dimension under general relativity, then maybe you could have a crystal that loses symmetry in time rather than in space. (laughs) That's the classic uh, Nobel Prize winner having a thought, and it's something like that. (laughs) Uh, uh, Wow, I love this idea. Uh, It it absolutely blows my mind. but, uh, But what would it look like, a time crystal? What would it look like? So if a time crystal lacks temporal symmetry, then it then it will have repeating patterns just like a normal crystal does, but they'd be in time rather than in space. So in theory, you'd have a crystal that sits comfortably in one configuration, then changes to another equally comfortable configuration, then back again forever without requiring any energy input. That sort of flip-flopping would be its natural state, just like a non-time crystal. That sounds suspiciously like a perpetual motion machine, and aren't they impossible? Well, Wilczek says he took a lot of grief when he first hypothesised that time crystals might be real. And he's very precise and careful when he talks about them now as a result. He told me that they come perilously close to being a perpetual motion machine, but they neatly dodge it just for a couple of reasons. Firstly, you could never extract any energy from a time crystal. So it's nothing like those wacky patents you see for perpetual motion machines (laughs) that claim to power whole cities, but somehow never stand up experimentally. (laughs) Secondly, Wilczek says that the laws of thermodynamics were penned a long time ago when we weren't aware of all the subtleties that open up in the world of quantum mechanics. Okay, so all the theory sounds nice. And I do love the idea that you have repeating patterns in time rather than space. Uh, But have we actually made one? Probably. Uh, There's been a couple of other papers in recent years that claim to have done exactly that. But Wilczek says a recent paper comes closer than ever before to meeting the strict definition of one, although the the strict definition is still up for debate at this stage. But engineers at at Google and physicists from Stanford University and MIT, amongst others, they've, they've created what they say is a time crystal inside Google's quantum computer. Uh, It turns out that the the components of a quantum computer are exactly what you need to construct a time crystal. And time crystals might even help create better quantum computers in the future. So it's all quite cyclical. They also hover very delicately in this unusual state. So Wilczek believes that they can make really, really accurate sensors for a range of experiments, like a a tiny electrical or magnetic disturbance could make them fail and and you could monitor that. 
So will this time crystal just go on ticking and repeating forever? Uh, no, but maybe yes in the future. <laughs> uh, the paper says that the time crystal does slowly run down and decay, but the, the team behind it have included models in the paper that they say proves that this is down to the, the inherent flaws in the quantum computer rather than the time crystal itself. Because current quantum computers are very basic. You could say that you know we're at the same point with them now as, as we were with classical computers in the 40s. So they, they say that improvements in the future will extend the life of the crystal, but we're probably some way off the sort of sci-fi idea of uploading our consciousness into a crystal to escape the heat death of the universe and live forever or anything like that. Or anything like uh, making it into a time machine. Exactly. Now we've got a story on microplastics. As you'll know, these are the tiny fragments of plastics that are basically everywhere. They're in the Arctic, across the Earth's remaining wildernesses, in the depths of the ocean, and sadly, the water that we drink. It's really bad. But what we don't know yet is what the health consequences are. Yeah, that's what we're getting closer to finding out. And for context here, the global production of plastics is now 320 million tonnes per year, And over 40% of that is used as single-use packaging. So we're getting hundreds of millions of tonnes of plastic waste going into the environment each year, and then that starts breaking down. And I saw a paper this week showing that microplastics now have turned up in human placentas. Oh, yikes. Yeah. Um, The study looked at six placentas that had been delivered in plastic-free births uh, in Italy. So that's where the midwives and doctors um, wear cotton gloves. Everything is non-plastic. All the equipment is, is, they don't use any plastic equipment. Now, all the births and pregnancies were completely normal and they've got healthy babies. But in four of the placentas they examined afterwards, they found microplastics. This reminds me of a story last year showing how millions of microplastic particles were released um, every time someone prepares baby formula milk when you shake it in the plastic bottle. Yeah, It's all genuinely worrying, but there isn't much scientific evidence yet over whether ingesting plastic particles is harmful or not. Yeah, so I spoke to a scientist about this, Dick Vethark of the Free University of Amsterdam. Uh, His lab's been doing loads of work on this. And he said, yeah, there's no hard evidence yet that plastic particles reach the bloodstream. However, they've done, they've been doing a lot of work on this. They found microplastics in the placenta and in amniotic fluid. And they've done experiments in vitro. So they've got cultures of placental cells grown in a Petri dish. And they found that the placental cells can, they can very efficiently take up microplastic particles And he says they've found they've observed changes in the expressions of genes and metabolites in the placental cells, indicating, he says, subtle biological effects. Mm, That sounds worrying, doesn't it? And do we have any idea yet of what what the kind of effects on a a fetus could be? Not yet. I mean, you know, this is still uh, very much uh, this is in vitro stuff. So we don't know. We need more research, uh, as we always say. But one of the Italian scientists on the placenta study suggested it it could alter immunity mechanisms in the fetus and and in the baby. Uh, But we have to wait and see. But yeah, as a note of caution, these gene expression changes have only been seen in vitro and they use high doses. So we've got to wait for these in vivo studies, which have much lower doses. That's all for this week. Thanks to our guest, Matt Sparks. And thanks to you for listening. 
As always, do go to newscientist.com slash pod20 to subscribe and enjoy all the content of the magazine plus audio versions of the stories with a 20% discount. This week we have an energy special and we outline how you can transform our energy system to achieve net zero emissions and it's an absolute must read. That link again is newscientist.com slash pod20. That's it. Thanks again. Spread the word and we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. I'm impressed you're saying heterologous rather than just mix and match. Mitch. I can't even say mix and match. Just cut <laughs> this whole thing PhD in genetics. Out. Yeah, <laughs> this podcast is produced by Ollie Guillou Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. 